We ought to whisper what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shout about materialism and religious pride. That quote was from Pastor J.D. Greer, the former president of the SBC, and he made that statement while preaching a sermon on Romans chapter 1. Now, by God's grace, although it took him three years, he did recently come out and repent of this statement and express regret for ever having said it. And this is good because it was an atrocious thing to say. It simply isn't true. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is actually the case. The Bible shouts very loudly against sexual sins. It's actually, I think you could make an argument that there is no other category of sins that the Bible speaks about more often and more passionately against. Scripture regularly goes out of its way to express how serious and how heinous sexual sins truly are. Uh, just for some examples, in the Old Testament, in Old Testament Israel, uh, only a very f a small amount of sins were considered such heinous crimes that they were punishable by death. And a good portion of the sins in Old Testament Israel that were punishable by death were of a sexual nature. God commanded the death penalty for a good majority of sexual sins. But we have other reasons why we know that the Bible is quite harsh against sexual sins. Paul goes out of his way in one of his epistles to tell us that sexual sins are uniquely sinful even when compared to all other sins. I have that on the screen for you. If you'll read with me 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, Paul says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see, Paul is very clear that there is a unique nature to sexual sins that don't exist in other sins, because in other sins you sin against the person, in sexual sins you sin against the person and against yourself. You sin against your own body. And I think that's why uh, fornication, homosexuality, just to give some examples, give rise to such very serious STDs. And today, many studies are beginning to show the extreme neurological and hormonal repercussions of rampant pornography use. Sexual sins destroy our bodies. The very body the Holy Spirit dwells in. Now, I could give a lot of other specific examples from Scripture, but I think it's probably best just to say that almost every time the New Testament lists sins, sexual sins not only always make it into that list, but oftentimes they headline it. And that's the case for our sermon text this morning. It's going to be a little bit of a serious sermon, as we do have to deal with what Paul has for us in regards to the wickedness of sexual immorality. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. When you get there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 
Ephesians 5, 3 through 6, Thus saith the Lord, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? This passage is a clear condemnation against impurity, against living a sexually immoral life. However, there is a difficulty in translation and interpretation of this text. Uh, everyone agrees that the, the primary focus of the text is of a sexual nature, but there is some debate over how to understand that there's also a reference to coveting. We are not to be sexually impure or covetous. And there's sort of a debate among commentators and, and interpreters over how to understand it. Some have argued that because the, the context is so clearly about sexuality, that Paul is using the word covet in a sexual way. Uh, so it's, they're arguing it's essentially being used the same way as lust. To covet another person sexually, to lust after them is to covet them. And so these commentators would say, you should not interpret the word covet the way it's sort of traditionally understood, which is uh, to desire something which you do, do not have of a material nature, right? To desire someone else's possessions. They're arguing that this is to desire them. Now, I went back and forth a lot this week in my studies. Uh, I don't actually agree with that. I think that Paul is condemning two different sins in this text. I think he is condemning both sexual immorality and then he's also condemning coveting as we traditionally think of it. But the good news is twofold. Number one, uh, whether, you, whether I'm right or wrong, it doesn't really change our understanding of the text or the applications I'm going to give you today. Uh, and number two, we all agree that certainly sexual immorality is sort of at the forefront. And then he's just sort of throwing in coveting uh, by way of a side. But in summary, with that out of the way, Paul takes aim at two kinds of sins, reminding us how much God hates them so that we as Christians will not partake in them. But we have a, a real problem with this text, and that this is much easier said than done. Lust and greed are powerful impulses. Experience testifies to just how prevalent and powerful sexual impurity and covetousness is to our broken nature. Sex and money are almost always at the bottom of every other sin. So much of the most horrible forms of corruption that we see in our day today, you could trace back what and why they're doing it and it almost always boils down to some kind of sexual or monetary gain. People are almost always sinning as means to chase these two great idols of our day, sex and money. Sex and money are not inherently bad. They're actually inherently good. Sex and money are good things, but in our fallen nature and in our fallen world, 
we have abused them and we have turned them into incredibly dangerous temptations. And since even regenerated man, even born-again Christians, as we learn throughout the New Testament, still have some of the old nature warring within us, even us as Christians, until the day of resurrection, struggle with the impulses of greed and lust. So how is it possible to fulfill Paul's commandment? How could we possibly avoid these powerful, powerful impulses to sexual immorality and to coveting? And I'm arguing the good news for us today is that Paul has actually given us, explicitly and implicitly, four ways to fight against these impulses. That's what our sermon is this morning. I want to give you four steps to avoid having a sexually impure or covetous heart. Four ways to avoid your heart being overrun with sexual impurity and covetousness. And the first one that Paul gives us is to cut it out completely. And that word completely is key, so we're going to focus in on that in a minute. Cut it out completely. Look at verse 3 with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul tells us that these sins must not even be named among us. Now here's the common way people have understood that. I would be willing to bet it's most likely the way you interpreted it in your head as we read through it. When you read that phrase, you think Paul is just simply saying, don't do these things. Right? Do not let them even be named among you means a stranger should not be able to examine the life of our church and find these sins within us. Like, don't let them name these sins among us, right? But I was convinced in my studies of a very strong grammatical argument that Paul is saying something much more literal here. Paul is not merely telling us not to do these things. He's very literally telling us don't even name them. Don't even talk about them. Don't even speak about them. This grammatical argument is reflected in your Bibles with the emphasis he puts on even, right? He doesn't say don't let these things be named among you. He says don't even let them be named among you. And and there's a strong grammatical argument that what that's doing is he's trying to tell us very literally, don't even talk about these things. Don't name them. Don't let the names of these sins come out of your mouth. Don't talk about them. And in case you think maybe this is a stretch, Let me just give you two reasons why I think it's a good way to interpret this. First of all, uh, although this is not part of our sermon text today, look just down in this chapter, look just down at verse 12. Look at what he's going to go on to say next week. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. Right? So you see, it's not uncharacteristic for Paul in this own chapter to tell us, don't even talk about these things. It's shameful to even tell people what is happening in our world today. And I think another reason why it's good for us to interpret Paul as being very literal, don't even talk about sexual sins, is because I think that makes sense with the very next verse where he goes on to tell us what not to do. Look at what he says in verse 4. After telling us, don't even let it be named among you, in verse 4, he gives us examples of what it might look like for you to talk about it. And here's some of the things you might do wherein you name these sins. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. He tells us, do not even 
name these things, and then he immediately tells us, don't joke about them, don't talk about them. You see, he's telling us something very literally. Don't even talk about sexual sins. Don't joke about them. Don't reference them. We need to cut them out of our lives completely. You don't just not do them. Don't even think about them. Don't even talk about them. Now, your Bible in verse 4 will probably use different words than I just read in the ESV. Some of these sins are sort of hard to, to render in the English. Sometimes they say things like no coarse jesting, or I don't know what your Bible translations say, but they're all essentially saying the same thing, that even our humor needs to be clean. There should be no sexual content to our jokes and to our kinds of humor. The way I like to simplify this is, is uh, I'll use a phrase that was common when I was in high school. Paul is telling you to get your mind out of the gutter. Get your mind out of the gutter. That was a phrase kids used to say in high school all the time. And when would someone have to tell another person to get their mind out of the gutter? Well, this is usually what the context is. Someone would say something and it's perfectly innocent. It's a perfectly normal sentence. Perfectly fine words. And then someone else has to find a way to take what they said and, and, and interpret it in a sexual manner or make a joke about how it, that sounds like something sexual. And they would have to say, get your mind out of the gutter. That's not what I meant. That's not what I said. Paul's saying, get your mind out of the gutter. We, don't, we, don't even, we should not even be joking about sexual sin. Someone says something and you turn it sexual. Don't do that. And it also works the other way. There are people who have their mind in the gutter will intentionally speak in what we call sexual innuendo. They're intentionally using ambiguous language to, to get you to think about something funny sexually or make this very non-sexual situation sexual. These are people who have their minds in the gutter. They're always joking and turning everything into some kind of intimate joke. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't joke like that. It isn't funny for Christians. Our humor should be cheerful and clean. So Paul's commandment is not only to avoid sexual sins and avoid covetousness, but to cut it out of our lives entirely. And here's where this comes in. I think what Paul is doing is he is subtly providing us with a powerful weapon against committing these sexual sins. This is not just a commandment. This is a strategy. Paul is subtly teaching us that part of the way that we struggle against sins like fornication and adultery and pornography is by the reason we Christians struggle with these things so much. Like, I, I, let me take a step back. I know a lot of Christians who have struggled with this. They struggle with pornography. They struggle with fornication. And they wonder, why can't I break free? Why can't I break free? And I think what Paul is telling us is the reason we can't break free from these quote-unquote big sins is because of the constant concessions we make to quote-unquote little sins in our lives all day long. John Chrysostom, writing in the third century, a very early commentator, he put it very simply, what I'm, the strategy Paul has given us here. I love this. Words are the way to acts. Words are the way to acts. The more you speak about things, the more you joke about things, you desensitize yourself to it, and then you're going to do them. The things you say will eventually lead you to the things you do. You let it into your mind, you let it into your heart, you're eventually going to do it. Words are the way to acts. Don't joke about things you wouldn't want to do. You don't want to beat your wife, don't make jokes about spousal abuse. 
You don't want to fornicate? Don't make jokes about sex. Words are the way to acts. Cut it out completely. Don't desensitize yourself to these things. And here's what I think that's probably going to look for a lot of us. Because as I said, many Christians struggle with these quote-unquote big sins. And I think that in a very practical way, part of the reason why this is such a problem in the Christian church today is because of the crude humor that we allow into our lives every day, not by our own lips, but through our media. Many Christians will watch TV shows where nearly every joke in the TV show has a sexual nature to it. Many Christians will even go so far as to watch TV shows that actually have explicit nudity in it. It's called pornography. There there are TV shows out there that seem harmless to the secular person, but if you were to really think about it, the entire show is based around young singles hooking up. So many of the TV shows we watch today are about young singles trying to hook up. The whole show is sexualized. Even if there's not like explicit imagery in it, it's still constantly getting you thinking about sex the whole time. And we don't just do this with our TV shows and movies. We do it with our music too. I know a lot of Christians, you know, worship music doesn't pump me up when I'm in the gym. I need, I need something to pump me up. And so they'll listen to secular music that is incredibly vulgar, incredibly wicked. And so here's what we do. We inundate our minds with coarse humor and nudity all day long, every day. And then now that it's on the forefront of our minds, it just naturally comes out of our mouths. And so we joke about it and we talk about it and we poke fun about it. And then we suddenly are desensitized to it. And then we wonder, why can't I stop looking at porn? Because you're over-sexualized all day long. Why can't I stop hooking up? Because you're over-sexualized all day long. Because of all of the little concessions we make in our lives every single day, it adds up. Paul is giving us a strategy. Do not even talk about these things. Let me ask you, if Paul believes we shouldn't even speak about the things that people do in the dark, do you think Paul would be okay letting it into our entertainment? You think Paul's okay? It's okay that you didn't make the joke, but you can listen to someone else make it for an hour and a half. It's okay that you're not doing it, but you can watch someone else do it for an hour and a half. Do you really think that Paul, if he was living in our day and age today, would be okay with the vast majority of music and TV shows that we as Christians indulge in a lot of times? Now, let me take a step back. I know I'm being a little forceful here, a little in your face, a little aggressive. I understand this is not easy. Let me just be completely honest with you. I was extremely personally convicted writing this sermon this week. I think perhaps one of my biggest weaknesses is the things that I will allow myself to be entertained with. So please, I am not talking at you. I'm talking with you here. But brothers and sisters, can I ask all of us, myself included, to take a step back and really evaluate, are there things you are putting before your eyes that you really shouldn't be? Is it it that important? Are there things you put into your ears you really shouldn't be? How important is it to listen to that song or to watch that show or to listen to that comedian? We need to be willing to make these sacrifices. I submit to you that God is too glorious and your soul is too valuable not to. Now, I do also readily admit that this is going to look different from person to person. I can't just give like blanket 
here's what everyone needs to do. I, I can't do that. It's, it's going to look different from every person. So let me just give some examples and if the shoe fits, so to speak. For some of you, this might mean working out at home, doing body weight workouts and not going to the gym, which has unfortunately become a, a place of incredible immodesty. It may mean not watching much television or movies at all anymore. It may mean finding new, healthier musicians to listen to. Here's a big one. It might mean deleting social media altogether. Social media has become a breeding ground for sexualized content. And to throw in the other sin Paul talks about, social media is especially bad when it comes to the sin of covetousness. Social media is essentially a place where everyone puts the best part of their lives and they hold it in front of your face and say, look at this. Do you know how hard it is for young kids to be on these sites and not covet what they're seeing in front of them? It definitely requires, especially our young women, to reevaluate what they're putting on social media and the intentions behind every post. Now, I, I understand I'm probably sounding like a grumpy Puritan right now. But I do believe that these might be the proper applications of making sure that these sins are not even named among us. We should not speak of them, joke about them, or entertain them. And the good news is that the more we wage war against these smaller everyday concessions, they will be, it will be easier to avoid the very big, the very damaging, and the very dangerous sexual sins that they eventually lead to. Cut all forms of coveting and sexual immorality out of your life completely down to the last song, episode, and app. But that's only the first strategy he's given us. He gives us a second strategy. Strategy number two is to give thanks. Give thanks. The flip side of cutting all of this out of your life is that you get to replace it with something else. And you replace it with thanksgiving. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is actually quite a prevalent theme throughout the book of Ephesians. Which is not surprising, because thanksgiving is also a prevalent theme throughout the entire Bible. It is not an under... Uh, it, it is not... Uh, I'm, having, I'm spacing the word. Uh, it would not be inaccurate to say that thanksgiving is an essential aspect of the Christian faith. Thanksgiving is a huge theme throughout the Bible. But let's just take a step back. I know this is a word we hear all the time. We probably know what it means, but let's just ask ourselves, what is thanksgiving? What does it mean to be thankful? I divine thanksgiving as the visible expression of contentment. I think thanksgiving is the visible expression of contentment. When we are content with what we have, then we become grateful for what we have. And when we become grateful of what we have, we naturally express our gratefulness and our content. And what comes out is what we call thanksgiving. When we recognize that God is the giver of all the good things in our lives and we desire to tell him that, and praise him for that. We are giving thanks to God. So what I'm saying is that contentment naturally leads to thanksgiving. The more content you are with your life, the more you will be thankful for all of the things in your life. But here's, the, here's what I started thinking about. But if, maybe my definition is wrong. Because if contentment was so 
key to thanksgiving. Why does Paul say give thanks rather than be content? And I don't know exactly the reason why, but here's my suggestion. I think that Paul knows the relationship between contentment and thanksgiving works both ways. There's a bridge that connects contentment and thanksgiving, and it's a two-way street. Meaning, yes, contentment will lead to thanksgiving, but I suggest to you that more thanksgiving will lead to more contentment. Because here's the thing, contentment, this is the beauty of what Paul's doing. Thanksgiving is easier than contentment. It's easy to talk about, you should just be content. You should just be content. Wouldn't it be great to just snap your fingers and be content? Right? That's not so easy. Contentment is hard. But you know what is easy? Thanksgiving. And I believe that the more you force yourself, as Paul instructs us here, to give thanks, the more intentionally and specifically thankful you express yourself, the more you will learn God will teach you and change your heart to be content. And that's why what I'm suggesting you do here is I'm not just saying to just be generally thankful. I'm not just saying start giving thanks at every meal. I'm not just saying wake up and say thanks. I would encourage all of us, like dedicate this week to regularly finding very specific things in your life to be thankful for and make God know it. More than that, the context of Paul is he's saying, we don't do coarse jesting and said be thankfulness. Make your neighbors know it. I challenge you to be the most thankful person in your world this week. Can I ask us, brothers and sisters, speaking humbly and again, speaking with you, not at you, when's the last time you've sanctified and set a time apart to turn to God and just give him thanks? If you're anything like me, your prayer life is filled with why this, why that, please do this, please do that, and it does not nearly have enough, thank you, God. And I think Paul is giving us an incredibly helpful strategy here. The more we are intentional to express thankfulness to God and to our neighbor, I think the more we will become content and glad with the life that he has given us. And then, when we're content and glad, that becomes a crucial weapon in our fight against covetousness and sexual sin. Clearly, it's a weapon against covetousness. I think that one's obvious, right? Because when you covet something, you're expressing discontent for what you have, and you want that instead. So clearly, contentment and thanksgiving wars against covetousness. But make no mistake about it, I think thanksgiving will war against our sexual impulses as well. And here's why I think that maybe I'm speaking mostly from the guy's perspective. I don't know if women can relate to this, but just in my own life as I was meditating on this week, I think so much of the crude, coarse joking that happens among men, it comes from a place of cheerfulness. Like we're all just having fun and we're trying to make each other laugh. And so we throw out a little joke. And so here's how Thanksgiving actually fights against sexual sins. Thanksgiving is reminding us that it's okay to have fun with your friends. It's okay to joke. It's okay. But our cheerfulness, the way we express our camaraderie, the way we express our cheerfulness needs to have a sanctified expression. So when you're tempted to make that crude joke, express thankfulness to God instead. I, I like the way the great Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, said it. He says this, Foolish talking and jesting are not the ways in which Christians' cheerfulness should express itself. Religion is the source of joy and gladness, but its joy is expressed in a religious way. In thanksgiving, 
and praise. A couple weeks ago, I talked about there's that old adage. In one of our sermons, I mentioned the old adage, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I said there's a lot of wisdom to that. We should practice that. Now I'm going to amend it. If you don't have anything nice to say, if you don't have anything appropriate to say, give thanks. Be thankful. And see what that does for your life. Replace your greed. Replace your coarse jesting by giving thanks to God. Cut it out of your life completely. Give thanks. But there's a third strategy. Study theology. Number three, study theology. Look at verse six with me. Chapter five, verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul warns us that the kinds of behaviors he's telling us not to engage in are going to be passionately defended by those who indulge in them. We see this in our day. I'm not saying anything strange to you. You can find all sorts, go out into the world, and it's not hard to find defenses, philosophical, scientific defenses for sexual sins and covetousness. I will never forget uh, listening a, 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 a while ago, about 10 years ago, I watched a movie that showcased a debate between a Christian pastor and who was then, he died of cancer, but at the time was the world's most famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens one of the leaders of what we call the New Atheist Movement. And in that DVD, Christopher Hitchens, they were in the middle of a debate, and he started going through the Ten Commandments and explaining how most of them are wicked. He believed the Ten Commandments were absolutely wicked. And I thought his reasoning was so funny. He got to the Tenth Commandment against coveting, and he said that's probably the most wicked of all. His position was that coveting is actually one of the highest of virtues. Because you see, what coveting does is it breeds competition, and competition breeds a better society. When you see your neighbor's prosperity, you should covet it, and you should want it, and you should covet it so hard that you will stop at nothing until you're richer than them. And then everyone does that, and the world becomes a better place. He said that covetousness was the highest of virtues. It's the best thing for society for us to constantly covet everything our neighbors have. And that's just one example that we could summon from the world's apologists. This is especially the case in our culture when it comes to sexual sins. Statistics, quote-unquote studies, philosophers are abound who seek to defend the godless sexual ethic. And they will come up with a variety of reasons why, for example, things like co cohabitation before marriage is actually good for marriages. Homosexuality is perfectly normal and healthy. That open marriages, so not one, one man, one woman, but being able to, to mess around with other people, this is actually evolutionary. This is how human impulses have evolved. It's an evolutionary advantage. Open marriage, closed marriage, monogamy is not how we evolved. That's not how we are designed. And I could go on and on and on. Essentially, any sexual practice that is consensual, and involves some kind of birth control, it's not just tolerated in secular society, it's promoted. It's defended. In other words, think about this. This is insane. We are living in a culture where there is no such thing. Any longer, there is no such thing as a sexual taboo. It doesn't exist. The floodgates have been opened 
Everything and anything is good. Go for it. Follow your heart. People love their sex practices so much, they will do whatever they can to sever that God-given conscience within them. They will create argument after argument to get us to shut our mouths and stop telling them about judgment. They will stop at nothing until they get to engage in any activity they want and not just be tolerated, but by us, be celebrated. And this is why we must study theology. We cannot fall prey to these foolish, wicked arguments, these studies, these statistics, these philosophers. We must know our Bibles. We must know what God has said about human sexuality. You see, the more we learn about our biblical ethic, the more able we will be to defend it. The more able we will be to tear down the arbitrary and evil sexual ethics of the world. You see, Paul knows we need to study our Bibles. We need to know our theology. We need to, as the book of Hebrews says, practice our discernment with constant practice. And when we do this, we avoid, as verse 6 says, being deceived by empty words. One of the ways we might be tempted to engage in these practices is by being convinced they're actually okay. So we fight against these practices by knowing our theology, knowing our Bibles, and tearing down these false, empty arguments. However, I've saved the most important step for last. We've seen a lot of good tools in our toolbox now for fighting against sexual sins and covetousness. Paul's told us to cut it out of our lives, even down to our very words. Paul has told us to study our Bibles, to know our theology. He's given us many tools, but the last one is the most important one. It's riddled all throughout the text, and I've described it this way. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Paul calls us to remember the gospel multiple times throughout this text. Let's look at the first one. Go back and read verse 3 with me again. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covenants must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. When Paul tells us to flee from these sins, he does so by reminding us that they are not proper among God's people, whom we call the saints. So in other words, he is doing what he's been doing for the entire entire second part of Ephesians. I've been, I've been saying this so many times throughout this sermon series. He is explaining to us kingdom living. He's reminding us of the gospel and specifically what it has done for us, how it's freed us, how it's transformed us, and he's using the gospel itself as a way to ward off these serious sins. He is telling us not to live as if we are still in the world, when in fact, God has made us saints. Why are you still living like you're not a saint when you are a saint? That's what Paul's doing. These behaviors are not proper among this group of people, and that's who you are. He is using the gospel to fight against these sins. We avoid impurity and greed simply because in Christ, those things are not who we are any longer. But this little subtle few words is not the only time he reminds us of who we are in Christ. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He specifically identifies covetousness as idolatry. In other words, when we covet, we are worshiping whatever it is we covet. To covet is to worship a false god. And this makes sense because that's really what coveting is doing, is it not? It's essentially saying, I'm not content in Christ. I'm not content with God who has given me all good things. There's something else I need, and it's much more important to my happiness and my contentment than whatever God is providing. So I'm going to go after that instead. When we covet, we put something else on the throne. So why should we not covet then? Because you're saints. You don't worship false gods. That's why. We don't worship created gods. In other words, Paul is telling us that coveting is incompatible with the gospel because it forces us to worship the creature rather than the creator. Now, by way as a side, uh, this is another reason why you hear me so often from the pulpit say that no person is truly unreligious. There's no such thing as a non-religious person. Paul here is telling us that everybody worships. God created to worship. Everybody you know worships. Some people worship the one and true triune God. Some people worship a distortion of the one and true triune God. Some people worship the sun and creatures and creepy crawling things. And some people, might I suggest, worship sex and money. But everybody worships. Many people live their lives in passionate pursuit of these things. Their life is one big religious pilgrimage trying to earn as much money and sex as they can get. They are incredibly pious, incredibly religious, very devout. And so we don't covet because we worship the one and true living God. You are a worshiper of the true God, so don't worship idols. Don't covet. Again, he's using the gospel to separate you from this way of life. But again, he does it again. Look at verse 6, not just verse 5, where he has told us that anyone who commits these things has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. And then he continues in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul reminds us that those who practice these things freely and without repentance have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. People who practice these things, in other words, belong to a different kingdom. And in the kingdom that they belong to, they will experience what verse 6 says, the wrath of God. Now, what's interesting about that is what did Paul already establish at the beginning of this letter? I have it on the screen for you. Does this sound familiar? Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul has already identified us as having an inheritance in the kingdom of God. We already have it, and the Spirit has sealed it. And he's saying that behavior over there, that, that behavior belongs to the people who don't have the kingdom of God. So don't live like you don't have an inheritance awaiting for you in heaven. But he does it even more in verse 6. He describes us as sons of disobedience. When in chapter 2, he talked about how we have been adopted 
into the family of God. So not only is he saying that behavior belongs to citizens of a different kingdom, it belongs to children of a different father. They are sons of disobedience. You, however, are sons of God. He is using the way the gospel has sanctified us as a motivation to avoid the sin. And that's why I get kind of frustrated the way I, I see this text constantly used in the debate over whether or not we can lose our salvation. No matter what we believe about that particular issue, and, and certainly this text should strike fear, the fear of God into us to some degree, but I, I think that's really abusing the context of here. This is not a warning text. Paul's not warning you that you're going to go to hell. He is trying to show you you are different. These people don't have what you have. They've been adopted into a different family. Why are you living like them? That's what Paul's doing. I like the way one commentator put it. He said it this way. I can't say it more succinctly. The writer assumes that his readers are not among these people. To describe this verse, therefore, as a warning to believers that they will lose their salvation does not do justice to its function in the context. Rather, it provides a further motivation to the readers not to even mention these vices, namely that those who actually perpetrate them are in a realm totally antithetical to the kingdom of Christ and God. That's what Paul is doing. He's not warning you, though it probably in a secondary sense has a warning impact. He is trying to tell you this is not who we are anymore. This is not who we are anymore. Remember what Christ has accomplished for you and then let that dictate how you live.